Tanel and Jeremy Tanel. Streaming to you recorded from Seattle, Washington. Here. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Seattle Knot, a Plowline podcast. This morning, I want to tell the story of an epic road trip. I've had the opportunity in order to travel the United States by car on a number of occasions. When I was 26 years old, I circumnavigated the United States with a buddy of mine in a 1983 Ford Ranger pickup with a canopy. But I'm not going to talk about that one. Through college, I worked my way, um, paying for my own college by working tourism in Alaska, British Columbia, and Yukon Territory. I drove tour buses, but I'm not going to talk about that today. I've seen 48 states. It's been a pleasure to be able to have explored North America by vehicle. But in 2008, I was running a small business with my wife. We were general managing it for a client of ours who was the franchise owner. And we were making good strides. 2007 was our initial year. We established all the parameters that the franchise needed us to. We were a runner-up in um, startup of the year with the franchise. We won small business of the year that year with the chamber. We, my wife was a runner-up for um, businesswoman of the year. Um, at the local business expo, um, we won some awards there. We were good at it. We were good at it. We, we took full advantage of leveraging the ability to market this little business and try and really expand it. January of 2008 rolled around and, and uh, all of a sudden there were all kinds of stories about Goldman Sachs and Baron Stearns and a, a bubble in the market that had emerged because of bad loans that were being given to people for homes they couldn't afford. I remember as my wife and I were running this business, we had the dream of owning a home and in fact actually went and talked with a couple of uh, mortgage brokers, one of which flat out told us, it doesn't matter that you, um, you know, that you can only show business income, you don't, you don't have to be drawing a paycheck, I could give you a loan even if you didn't have a job. And my wife and I cr- scratched our heads at that and thought, that sounds crazy. We passed on that opportunity. I'm glad we did. Because what was to come was going to hit us hard. And had we bought into a house 
under the pretense of these bad loans, it would have hit us even harder. So 2008 rolls around and the rumors of a bubble and its looming implosion is um, on everybody's lips. But it takes time. It takes time for these things to manifest. It takes time for these things to um, bubble up, to come to the surface. January, February, March. First quarter was a little slow for this business. We had hoped that we would come out of the gate running for our second year. We were planning on doubling our income. We were certainly on the trajectory of doubling our income at the end of fourth quarter, 2007. We were doing well. By second quarter, things really weren't picking up. I was looking at maybe laying off an employee. The summer picked up a bit. But as fall approached, it was clear that, 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 uh, that we were not going to make our revenue goal for the year. And we weren't alone. Everybody else was in the franchises were expressing the same lament. And then October of 2008 came around, and as I was driving my company truck, I was listening to NPR on the radio, and the announcement came that, indeed, we were emerging into a recession. Not just, not just any recession. The words that were being thrown around was maybe the greatest recession ever. It would compare to the great stock market crash of 1929. It would be it would be massive in scope. It would affect everybody. Uh, there would be massive foreclosures, and the country just didn't know where things were going to go. I turned the radio off. I picked up the phone. I told my wife, "We're going to need to make some dramatic changes because this business is not going to sustain us." through what's coming. We had been talking about it for a while and she agreed. I called up the franchise owner and we too had been talking about it for a while and I made some arrangements. I felt a sense of loyalty to this individual because frankly, he really took a chance on us and had circumstances been different, the three of us would have produced something pretty special. But these were the circumstances we were faced with. And my thought was to not go in blindly, but to try and take on the reality of the situation as quickly as possible. So I agreed to stop taking a salary. In November, I suddenly became eligible for um, unemployment benefits, and I took advantage of those. And we began to dramatically downsize our lives. I began to prepare the business in order to be owner-operated by this owner who was remote. Um, I trained my employees to take over further responsibilities. Uh, I split up the some of the management duties um, between them 
I found ways to ensure that the bookkeeping could be managed at a reasonable cost. And I prepared to make our exit in several months. I took the truck that we had a loan on, a personal vehicle, down to the bank, handed him the keys, apologized. I took the 1983 Volvo Turbo sedan that we had, loved that car, and sold it. I backed a U-Haul trailer up to the house one Saturday afternoon, and I emptied out three quarters of everything we owned of the house and into this and took it to the auction house. I liquidated every asset we could. I paid off every debt we had. I packed up enough things for a small apartment into a container that a friend of mine allowed me to leave on their property for a short period of time until we could land on our feet because I knew we were going to be taking a leap of faith here shortly. The new year rolled around. It was 2009, January. February, I continued this process of downsizing, preparing. March rolls around. My wife found a 2001 Dodge Dakota two-wheel drive stick shift, manual windows, tape deck that had 12,000 miles on it sitting on a lot. We took some of the cash we had. We went down. We made a deal. We bought it. Some old man had purchased it years ago and parked it in a garage. We had purchased a small, modern teardrop trailer called a Tab with some of the cash that we had. And at the end of March, we said goodbye to our friends in our home. We packed up our dog and we left. The idea was maybe we could ride out the recession and perhaps we could lean into some of the other skills that we had. We created a website called Step Outside Yourself. I put a vinyl sign on the back of the teardrop trailer with the URL and we began to write and blog and try and tell stories about one couple as they made their way through the beginnings of this recession. Our initial first two weeks was all about saying goodbyes. First, we went to Eastern Washington to say goodbye to a group of friends, traveled down 97 to my parents' house in Bend, spent a few days with them. They wished us luck. My father handed me a pistol, which I tucked away into the back of the teardrop trailer. He said, be careful. And we headed to California. We saw my sister, my niece and nephew. They were enthralled with the trailer. They wanted to spend the night in it. Gave hugs and kisses. Said goodbye to my mother, her husband. And we made our way to Yosemite. This was the moment that the impact and the grief of what we had gone through for the past six months started to hit. As we made our way out of the Sacramento Valley and up into the foothills. Came up and, uh, and over. Started descending into the valley. My wife was morose. 
I was quiet. I wasn't sure where this journey was going to lead. I wasn't sure how this was going to play out. She kept thinking about everything that we had lost. In particular, she would reflect back to this set of bicycles that I bought. It was the summer of 2005, several years previous. We had been dating. I wanted something that would connect the two of us. And I had tracked down at this little bike shop two matching Schwinn bikes, 1972, the Breeze and the Speedster, in perfect condition. They still had the little rubber nubs on the tires. They'd never, never been ridden. I took her out to dinner, had a wonderful date, walked her down to this little uh, recycled cycles kind of bicycle place. The kid walked us into the back. He had a sheet over the two. And he did the reveal, and she was ecstatic. We rode out of there. We rode those bikes for years together. They were included in the auction. And we made the mistake the night of the auction of going down to just see how things were going. There were hundreds of people milling around the auction yard. Our stuff was amongst a bunch of everybody else's stuff. And my wife was holding back the tears as we walked around. But when we went outside and saw the two Schwins and two people that my wife clearly thought weren't worthy of them and overhearing their conversation of how he could pull the baskets off the front and change out the tires, she lost it. She burst into tears and she ran out of the auction house. That story played over and over in her head. And as we were descending there into the Yosemite Valley, it played over and over again. She was crying as we were coming through the mountains. Even the beauty of that valley couldn't draw her out of that moment. I made our way up the road next to the Merced River, found our campsite that we had reserved. It was early spring, April, very beginning, and it was cold. Snow was still on the ground. Ice was on the shore of the Merced River. We set up camp. I got the heater working in the little trailer. I got the dogs tied up outside, and I unloaded some of our gear, built a fire. It was a beautiful night, clear, cold. And I took my wife by the hand, and I walked out amongst the canopy of the trees in the campground, following the road out to the main road, trying to find a break because I could see the moonlight moving through the trees. I knew, I knew that if I could see the sky, that the moonlit cliffs and rock faces would, would be stunning. And indeed I did. 
in the middle of a bridge on the Merced River, the full moon over our head, shining over Half Dome and El Cap, looming above us, my wife's eyes opened. The scales fell from them, and we both realized why we were there. We were there to embrace life in the midst of the trauma and the difficulty and the sacrifices that we had made in order to get there and were going to make going forward. It was a wonderful way to start the trip. We spent a significant amount of time out there on that bridge talking, imagining what this journey would be. And finally, we made our way back to camp. You could hear the laughter of the families that surrounded us. And then a commotion not far from us as a big black bear began to make his way through the camp. The dogs began to bark. This bear and its cub had no fear. Walked right into camps, started knocking over ice chests. The whole campground became animated, working to chase this bear out. It finally did leave, but it was, it was quite a show. We spent two days in Yosemite. Packed up. We were living off of an unemployment check that came in weekly and a little bit of savings, which we were desperately holding on to. The idea was, was maybe we could find a job. Maybe we could relocate. Maybe we could make some money off of our writing, off of our journey. So we headed out. We went out the backside of uh, Yosemite, out Oakdale, headed towards the Fresno Valley. And by the time we got to Fresno, we ran out of money. We filled up the tank, bought a little bit of groceries, and we were 24 hours away from an unemployment check. So we found a parking lot. It was the weekend. It was in a business park on the edge of Fresno. Pulled the trailer in. Spent 24 hours waiting. Monday morning, the check arrived into our checking account. I felt confident that we could move on. And we started headed towards Bakersfield. We were going we to make our way to Joshua Tree. We crossed over the desert, and the smell of orange blossoms was overwhelming. As we drove up and over the hills, our windows open. We went out Barstow, made camp at a K KOA, showered, cleaned up, washed the dogs, cleaned out the back of the truck. We were trying to hike or bike or move our bodies in any way we could, whenever we could. 
found an old ghost town that we had hiked out to, and the dogs loved it. Got back in the truck and made our way to Joshua Tree. When we made it to Joshua Tree, it was another magical moment. We set up camp next to a brother and sister that uh, were there to do a climbing clinic, and we were planning on spending the week. We hiked, we biked, we made friends. We spent Easter Sunday there with them. We're connected to them still. Over the years, they've grown up, had children of their own. Marriages. It was our first connection on the road, and it meant a lot. The desert was gorgeous. And it seemed almost untouched. Not far from our campsite, I happened to pull out a a 7-Up can from the 1970s with an old pull tab. It was in perfect condition. After Joshua Tree, we got our next check, and we headed out. Made our way into Arizona. Phoenix was excruciatingly hot. We knew we didn't want to stay there, so we headed north to Sedona. And on our way into Sedona, we weren't sure where we were going to stay, so my wife put up a Craigslist ad that basically said, you know, not all that wander are lost. Two nomads, two dogs, teardrop trailer, looking for a driveway. And we got a response. My wife made a phone call, and this young couple who lived in downtown Sedona offered us a meal and a driveway to park for a couple of days until we could get settled. We made our way into Sedona that evening, enjoyed an amazing meal with these incredible strangers. The, uh, and they relayed to us their story, how they came out from California the previous year. They wanted to live in Sedona, and they camped in the National Forest Land for over three months until they could find jobs and create a savings to the point where they could afford this house. So the next day, they took us out to the National Forest, to the, to, which is this incredible, sprawling desert landscape surrounded by red rock. And we found this perfect little spot that we could pull the teardrop trailer into, park it, lock it up. It was amongst juniper trees, and it sat right on top of a little bluff that overlooked the desert below it and the red rock behind it. I built a small shower inside one of those juniper trees. I trimmed out a small V in the, in the branches, and I hung a sun shower, a um, little black plastic bag that you fill with four gallons of water and leave it in the sun all day to heat up. I hung it in the tree. I paved the, the floor with, with flat flagstone rock, and, uh, and we made camp there. We spent almost two weeks in Sedona, hiking, biking, 
enjoying our new friends. He made glass for jewelry. And I spent a couple of days helping him kiln and polish this glass that a friend of his named Hobbit would take copper wire and silver wire and he would make these intricate, intricate silver patterns around these small little glass pieces that had these melted off rounded edges and they were polished and he would make jewelry out of them. I still have the necklace, so does Jerry. Years later, we went back to Sedona uh, about four years ago and Jerry and I, because we wanted something to remember the trip, stopped into a bead shop to make ourselves our own jewelry. And there, sitting in the case, was a small little glass amulet wrapped in wire made by Hobbit. I bought it. On this trip, after about a week and a half, it was time to go. We said goodbye to our friends. We wished them the best. And we headed up the canyon, out Flagstaff heading to the south rim of the Grand Canyon. My wife had never been. I had only been once to the north rim. We moved through Navajo territory and through the desert. A sandstorm engulfed us for a time. And the cutoff to the south rim came up, and we drove our way out and around that south rim campground to the other side of the National park, gathered some information, exited the park, and drove into the national forest land adjacent to it. Our friends in Sedona had taught us that national forest land is free to camp in, as long as you've got a forestry permit, which we did. So, we made camp in the forest service area that was about four miles outside of the park, and the two of us drove into the park in order to enjoy it during the day. The South Rim is gorgeous. Years ago, for whatever reason, looking through pictures with my mother, she retold the story of how my father got caught by the federales trying to cross the border from Mexico into Texas with a load of weed Influenced by, I mean, he's certainly his own man. He made his own choices, but the company he was keeping at the time was less than reputable. The two of them got caught, had to drop their, drop their load. My father was deathly ill from, from drinking water down there. They made their way across the desert, escaping the Federales, and were stopped at the border when trying to cross. They were taken into custody. Court dates were arraigned. My grandfather drove out, was allowed to take my father into his custody, brought him back to California. And several months later, my mother and my father, who were dating at the time, left my sister at my grandparents' house and made the trip back out to Arizona for my father's court case. Along the way, they stopped off at the south rim of the Grand Canyon. And there, as my mother so eloquently relayed, 
I was conceived. So, coming back to the South Rim, for some reason, meant something to me. We took our photos, made our memories, did a couple of hikes and packed up and started to head out. We were going to make our way to Lake Powell. And we were going to hang out there for a little bit because we needed to, we needed to wait for our next unemployment check. Jobs were pretty scarce. I picked up a little bit of side work, but there were no, nobody was hiring for anything. The first night we pulled into, uh, into the small town there at Lake Powell, we pulled in next to a small coffee shop so that my wife could hook up to the Wi-Fi as she sat in the trailer. We really couldn't afford a cup of coffee, so I parked as close as I could. She had restarted her undergraduate work and was trying to, trying to wrap that up. She got into WSU, Washington State University online, and was working towards her bachelor's degree. So as she finished up her, her assignments, I hung out in the trailer, and the two of us sat there in the parking lot with not much else to do. Suddenly a knock came on the door and I opened it up and there was a tall man with a straw cowboy hat, cowboy boots, blue jeans, buttoned down, white striped shirt. And he said, uh, howdy. And I said, well, hi. He said, this here is one heck of a cool trailer. I said, oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, sure. You want a tour? Well, yeah, I can I can kind of see it from here. I said, "Yeah, yeah, this is a this is a teardrop trailer um made by this company. What are you two doing?" Uh, we're traveling around the southwest trying to trying to see where this recession goes. Well, you might be traveling for a while. I said, "Well, it kind of looks that way." Two of us struck up a conversation that lasted for a bit there outside the trailer and kicked the tires. And he finally said, you know, why don't you come in and why don't you join me for a beer? I said, ah, you know, honestly, I, uh, no, 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 my treat. Well, I, uh, and Jerry spoke up from inside the, inside the trailer. Go have a beer. Okay. So I went in and sat down with this good old boy and, and we talked for hours. Hours, at least four pitchers worth of hours. Coors Light was his drink, and uh, four pitchers later, Jerry comes in, probably wondering where I'm at. Sits down next to us, big old grin on her face, and and this extraordinarily charming gentleman begins to include her in the conversation. Gets her a drink. I think she ordered a pina colada. That sounds about right. And he says, how about we get ourselves some dinner? Again, Jerry and I, oh, no, no, my treat. I, I, I just don't, I insist. 
So we sat down and had an incredible Southwest meal. Had another several pitchers of beer. And talked for a number of hours. It was great making this incredible connection with this man. Somebody we had just met. He was gracious. He was kind. He was entertaining. He was interesting. As the restaurant was coming to a close, he suggests, you know what? Let's go get a nightcap. I know this great space out on the Navajo reservation that I think you're both going to love. We were both kind of drunk. And so we agreed. We hopped in this truck, in this uh, gentleman's truck. Jerry sat bitch and in the middle and I, I'm up against the door, window rolled down with the night air blowing on my face. And we drove out into the night. I wasn't worried. And I had told myself that we were going to trust on this journey. We were going to we were going to lean into the better angels of our own nature. I'm glad we did. Out into the desert night we drove. The stars twinkled incredibly in the night sky. And soon enough, out on the horizon, glimmering lights began to emerge. And as we pulled into this bar in the middle of nowhere, we hopped out, walked in, and were surrounded by members of the Navajo Nation. There were some warning looks, some looks of, of, I'm not exactly sure why you boys are here. But when we bellied up to the bar and ordered our drinks, and I took my wife out for a spin on the dance floor, everything seemed to be quite welcoming. Jerry and I danced for several hours and we had several more shots and I was liquored. And as inappropriate as it is that this man was our designated driver, it is what it is. I certainly would never condone that behavior and I certainly understand the level of consequence in which it holds but as the bar shut down the three of us hopped back in his truck and and he drove us back out we drove into the night trying to keep our eyes open and made it back to our teardrop trailer shook hands said our goodbyes wished each other well and he drove back out into the night Jerry and I crawled into the teardrop, probably two in the morning, getting ready for bed, laid down, and I had to pee ferociously, but we were in a parking lot, and there was no place to pee. 
So I thought in my drunken state that I could hold it. Somewhere around three in the morning, I suddenly became aware of the fact that the teardrop trailer was surrounded by people. A bustle of voices. And I could make out them talking about the trailer as they stood around it. My best estimate would be 30 or 40 people. And all of a sudden, it began to rock back and forth. And I could hear voices of people saying, hey, there's people in there. And the rocking stopped. But I was awake, and so was my bladder. Jerry had planned for such a contingency. She had picked up these bags, tube-shaped, that were designed for emergency situations. You would pee in the bag and it would crystallize your urines into a solid state so that you could throw it away into a trash bag. She quickly rummaged through the compartment where she had stored them as I sat up on the edge of the bed, very aware that we were surrounded by people, very aware that I was unable to stand in this teardrop trailer, and very aware that trying to get myself oriented was going to be a feat. As I held the bag and myself, I began to release with great exhalation. And pretty soon I realized this bag's getting full. And I looked at Jerry and I said, I need another bag. I need one. I need one. And she scurried to get one out. And just in the nick of time, I managed to get that bag in place. And I began to fill that one too. They worked as they should. Jerry pulled out a garbage bag. Put them inside. Tied it off. Put it at the door. I had relieved myself. And despite the dispersing crowd outside as they began to drive home from the club that they must have been released from we went to sleep we woke up kind of late the next day we were anticipating a visit from my parents who were driving down from Oregon to Lake Powell just to check on us I think they were worried I know they were worried my brother had joined them which was a joy. And late that afternoon, me considerably hungover, my parents arrived. It was great to see them. We visited the Dam Works, I, which is a, a part of the state park system. I stamped my co copy of the Monkey Wrench Gang with the with the park stamp and the date. We uh, went out to Lake Powell. We rented a small boat, piled in, started driving up the canyons. Spent the day out on the lake, came home, came back, had dinner. And the next day, we all drove up to Zion. We made our way up. My parents had a reservation at the lodge and 
we drove through the park and out the backside to the National Forest Land on the Virgin River. There's a small patch about 10 miles outside of the park that is uh, considered National Forest Land on a sandy bar, and it was full of people. We found a spot, set up camp, drove back to Joshua Tree, and spent a couple of days with my folks. They left. We hung out. And we began to write, trying to create content and blog posts for our, for our journey. And the park was full. There were so many people there. And the news began to run stories about swine flu. And it felt all of a sudden, for whatever reason, just incredibly dangerous. We didn't have a lot of moorings. We were, we were going from place to place. And I think it was beginning to take its toll on us. After about a week, we drove out of there trying to get away from people and made our way to Cedar City and then up the pass to Grand Escalante. There was a national forest campground there that was still snowed in. Nobody was there. I pulled out the shovel that I had packed and I began to dig. And I managed to dig our way back to a secluded little campsite. Pulled in. Turned on the propane. Got the heater going. And we hung out for a few days. It was freezing. Freezing cold. And our paranoia had gotten to us. We, we had driven all the way up into the mountains to try and get away from people. Because all of a sudden, it felt like the world was coming to an end. It felt like between housing crisis and collapsing economy and bailouts and unemployment and uh, people getting kicked out of their homes and homelessness on the rise and swine flu... All of a sudden, it just felt like the end was near. I woke up on the second day up there to find cougar tracks around the trailer in the snow. That was concerning. We were broke. We had no money. We were tapping into our savings. We still had our unemployment, but we were a week out. It was becoming more and more of a resource drain to continue to move forward. And we weren't sure how much longer we were going to do this. And we were in the middle of a conversation about whether or not from here we should continue going over the pass and head east deeper into the United States or if we should go home. And there was a debate. My wife was for going home. Our first grandson was approaching his birth date to be in June. It was now approaching May. 
We had time. On top of it, my wife was very sick. She was diagnosed with renal kidney failure in 2006. And her right kidney was failing. Not only failing, it had massive cysts on it that were making her sick. She'd lost a significant amount of weight in the six weeks we'd been on the road. And here we were, up in the mountains, in the freezing cold, dug in with a cougar. You see, mental health is one of those things that you have to cultivate. And external circumstances can certainly play a major part. Stressors, anxieties, fears. And we were afraid. So, on that third morning, I grabbed the pistol that my father gave me. I put on the best boots I had, warm jacket, closed the trailer behind me. Much to the protest of my wife. And I followed those cougar tracks up into the hills. I'm not real sure what I was thinking. I think that I just didn't want to be threatened. I think I just wanted to feel like I could defeat something, protect myself from something, overcome something. I hiked around for about an hour, turned around and started heading back. I couldn't shake the feeling that I was being watched the entire time, but I saw nothing. I made it back to the trailer. My wife was furious to the point that she insisted that we, that we pull out of there and we leave. So we did. We made our way down to the pass and had the largest argument of the entire trip. I was insistent that I was going to head over the mountains and send her home. She had no interest in continuing to head east, and I had no interest in heading back. We made it back down to Cedar City, found a KOA, set up camp, took showers, brushed her teeth, made a meal, and made serious considerations of taking her to the emergency room because she was so sick. The cold had played havoc on her immune system. And my mental state wasn't great. After a good night's sleep, we agreed that we would head back to, to that Forest Service campsite one more time. And try and collect our... Try and collect our, our bearings for where we were going to head next. We set up camp once again. Made our way back into the park to go for a hike. Came home, came back. 
spend a single night there. And the next morning when we woke up, as I was making breakfast, we felt this incredible urge to pack up and get the fuck out of there. It just felt like something was descending on us and we didn't know what it was. So I don't even think we finished breakfast. We wrapped up the biscuits and the bacon and paper towels, packed everything up, headed out. We decided we were going to cut through Vegas, make our way back home. We came down, followed the Colorado River Canyon down into Vegas. It was 118 degrees. The heat was staggering. We stopped at a Starbucks to get as much ice as we could to dump it on top of the dogs and give them water and headed north. We traveled that little stretch of highway that goes out there heading towards Dallas Air Force Base and a few of the UFO territories out there. Very strange. Very strange drive. And finally made our way to the turnoff for Death Valley. It would be the last national park that we were going to make our, our stop in. And as we approached the outside of Death Valley, there was a small lookout turnoff that would give you your first look into the valley itself. Nobody was there. Just us. We pulled the truck and trailer into the expansive parking lot, found a spot, grabbed the dogs on leash, and started walking up the walkway to the, to the lookout. The sun was about to set. We hadn't seen another car on the entire trip in. It was a little eerie. The colors across the desert were a myriad of oranges and yellows and blues and As you looked out the road to the east and again to the west, there were suddenly like a mirage, a series of lights coming at us. Not just one pair of headlights, a train of headlights. They just suddenly appeared heading this way. And we waited. The sun continued to dip. And soon enough, dozens upon dozens of cars began to pull in to the parking lot. From out of nowhere, people began to culminate at the bottom of the parking lot as we looked down on them. You could hear their voices all in a myriad of conversations, and they began to make their way up the footpath. The lookout was a large, circular, concrete pad that had a small wall on the edge that you could sit on or stand on that gave you a 365-degree view of the desert. And as people began to emerge into the circle, they began to take spots up, sitting and talking in little circles. And Jerry and I stood in the center, watching all of this take place, just suddenly appearing before us. And I began to walk the dog around the edge of the circle, listening to these conversations. Every language on the planet must have been represented 
except for English. Every language was there. Every group of people were there. We represented the English speakers. Where did they come from? Who were they? Why did they come here? The sun had set. Most of the people stayed. We made our way down to the vehicle. We were going to head into the desert, head into the park, find a campsite. We headed to the park office, got directions to Furnace Creek Campground, and made our way to the lowest spot in Death Valley, below sea level. Nobody was in the campground. Where did all these cars come from? I found our spot, set it up. It was 117 degrees. I immediately pulled out the water jugs, took my shirt off, and headed to the bathroom that had running water to fill them up. I had to get the dog soaked. I had to get us showered. I had to make dinner. The moon was rising. It was full. And as I filled up these two five-gallon jugs in the bathroom and began to walk out, a white Jeep pulled up in front of me and stopped. An old man, of, he was fit for his age. He was, he was uh, of good complexion and stature. He had a long beard and he was well-dressed. He was wearing shorts and a button-down short sleeve shirt. He had a bandana around his collar. His Jeep was well-equipped for the desert. Gas cans on the back, water jugs. And he turned to me and he said, How's it going? And uh, I put down my water jugs and I said, Hot. And he goes, Yeah, it is hot. But how are you doing? And I thought for a moment, and I thought, well, I don't know. I feel like I'm running. And he said, sometimes we just need to stop. I nodded. He said, uh, me and my family are going to be camping up here. Probably not from far from you. You should come over and say hello. And I said, thank you for the offer. He pulled away and I picked up my five-gallon jugs, made my way to the campground, set about cooling the dogs off, getting Jerry and I both showered in the trees that were around us, the shrubs. Made dinner. The full moon had risen. And in the dark, people had arrived in the large group camp circle that was adjacent to us. Maybe 15 or 16 people laughing. No fire. Why would you have a fire when it was 115 degrees? We sat in a circle. You could just barely make them out in the moonlight. And they laughed and they chatted. And we sat from afar, wondering if we should go and join them. 
We didn't. We didn't. We were defeated by the heat and the trip and the journey. And we went to bed. And as the moon rose high, their laughter seemed to turn into a song in the middle of the night. We woke up early the next morning, intent on escaping the desert before the heat came up. It was well over 100 degrees. They were gone. Not a single one was there. Packed up camp, and we made our way out of the desert. Who did we meet last night? Who was that man and the people with him? We began to drive out to the 395 in order to make our way back to Sacramento, some sort of home base. We were going to make our way to my mother's house, try and plan ourselves for a few days, calm ourselves down. It was a perilous trip. We could barely afford to fill the tank. We arrived in Sacramento with the gas light on. And we only stayed one night. Woke up the next day. My wife had received a phone call from our daughter-in-law that she was in contractions early. It was false labor, of course, but that didn't stop my wife from setting the trajectory. We hopped in the truck with a few hundred dollars from my mother, filled up the tank, and I drove all night to make our way back home. Sometimes you just got to keep moving forward. Even when the journey feels lost. I hope you enjoyed this story. This is the third edition of the Seattle Knot, a Plowline podcast. If you're interested in the work we do um, and supporting that work, you can go to Patreon backslash Mixed Plate Podcast, which is my wife's podcast, and join us there. I suggest you also check out the Mixed Plate Podcast. It's uh, an excellent interview format that my wife does. She's very good at it. You can also take a look at uh, our consulting services at co3consulting.com and you'll find more information at plowline.com for this podcast, the Mixed Plate podcast, and future publications. If you would, rate this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. Give it a couple of stars and a thumbs up, a comment if you wish. It helps the algorithm to, to uh, move us up and let people find us. Appreciate you listening. Thanks again.